For most of us, life coasts along at a relatively normal rate, and then a telephone call, a doctor's visit, or a twinge of pain, and we find ourselves paddling madly through the rapids of suffering. We all pray that we will never have to experience this pain, but then it happens. One of the biggest delusions of life in the prosperity of America is to believe that the American dream will last forever. And that it can guarantee no suffering. I'm sure you can find some preachers who will tell you that they can guarantee freedom from pain if you will only follow their formula, which they will give you for a small or a large donation. But this too is a lie, as the old wise man observed in the book of Ecclesiastes. There will be a time to laugh. But in this present existence, there will also be a time to weep. But is there a way that we can still look up with hope when we feel that the present has become death and that there is no future? In today's study, our discussion leader Dave Wurtzen takes us to Revelation chapter twenty-one, a chapter where Jesus Himself promises that there will come a time when there will be no more tears. Dave introduces our study with some personal sharing about a time of intense sorrow in his childhood, because of the old Route 22 in New Jersey. Let's join Dave, and see if we can discover together a basis for real hope in the midst of suffering. I saw the sign Route 22, and it reminded me of when I was a kid. Route 22. Was one of the very first expressways. It was kind of an experimental expressway. It was one of these expressways that was supposed to be an expressway, but it wasn't because it, the median that divided the、uh, eight lanes of traffic was very small. You could easily kind of jump from one side of traffic to the other. It had all kinds of on ramps that were coming onto. There were even lights from time to time. It was a killer highway. In fact, in New Jersey, we used to try to avoid it if you could possibly stay off Route 22. You tried to do so, and as I saw that sign, Route 22, I flashed back to when I was a kid, because it reminded me of a situation when I was about eight years old, when I realized for the very first time that tears could be for something a whole lot more serious than just breaking your Tonka truck. We've all cried. Every one of us have cried tears, and every single one of us long for tears to be wiped away. And as I mentioned to you, my own life experience—that there was a time in my life when I realized that, man, you could cry tears that would seem like they were never going to be able to be wiped away. That happened in my own life when I was eight years old. You see, my brother had a my my dad had a quartet. One of the things in my dad's ministry, he would have evangelistic quartets that would travel with him. He would usually fly to a place, and his quartets would drive. And I would often go with the quartet, so I got to know these different college guys. They would often drop out for a year of school and travel. My dad, and in some incredible ways, a lot of them went on, became the head of many of the major missions around the world, and founding hospitals and all kinds of things. In fact, I think it was one of my dad's richest ministries. But I remember one of my dad's baritones was named Wayne. He was a big fella, big enough to play professional baseball. He was a gentle guy, though often you know those great big hulks of guys can be gentle and quiet in their spirit. And I'll never forget when we started to get the word as I traveled with the quartet. I noticed that the quartet was teasing him. 
they would constantly be jostling him because he had fallen in love. And so I got to trace, as this little eight-year-old kid, I got to trace the joy of Wayne courting this beautiful young little woman. And they were all excited, and they both loved Jesus. And one of the very first times an eight-year-old, I started entering into what it was like, you know, for a Christian man to court a Christian woman. And, and all the wonders of what the Song of Solomon, you know, kind of in an exotic way, was, was beginning to communicate. Even as an eight-year-old, I began thinking about, man, you know, this is really kind of something different. And what's going on? here. Remember when Wayne and his wife, they were married, and then they took off for their honeymoon. And on their honeymoon, they were heading down south, and in order to do so, they had a ride down Route 22. And early in the morning, on the very first day of their marriage, as Wayne was driving down Route 22, a big truck on the other side of the highway suddenly cut loose with one of its tires. And the tire began to roll freely right down Route 22, right towards him instinctively, like almost any of us would do, Wayne just turned, jerked his wheel to try to dodge that great big truck tire. And when he did, he went head on into the other lane of traffic. And instantly, his new bride was killed. And he wasn't hurt very seriously, but I'll never forget driving with my dad the very next day in the afternoon, we went to the hospital. And that's when, as an eight-year-old, I realized that you could cry tears for something a whole lot harder than Tonka toys. As we walked into the hospital, I remember as an eight-year-old kid, you know, the tears streaming down my face because I loved Wayne. You know, what do you say? As I look around this audience, all of us say, you know, that's one of the happiest days of your life. You know, that you've just been newly married and all the wonders of beginning a, a marriage together in a family And it's suddenly a crisis, an accident like that. And all those why questions like, God, 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 why in the world did you allow this to happen? And and all the anger and all of that. I remember going to the hospital room wondering, like, what in the world do you say? As we, you know, we began the conversation just with some small talk and, you know, Wayne really wasn't hurt very much physically, but you could tell that he was just wounded as deep as anybody could be wounded deep in his soul. What do you say? Never forget my dear dad. You see, my dad knew that this present world wasn't enough. You see, my dad knew that we live in a world where things like Wayne losing his new wife happen. And one of the things my dad knew as we went to the hospital room is that that we had a promise from the Savior that could ultimately not give us an answer in the present, not take the tears away forever, and and not cause us not to cry, because we're going to cry, and there are going to be years of crying for Wayne. But what a catastrophe like that reminds us of is that right now we live in the old world order. What I want all of you to realize is that right now, things are not the way they're supposed to be. And one of the greatest temptations that you have in your life is that you want to believe that you're now living in the place where it really happens. You're living in the place where things are the way they ought to be. And there's a longing in our soul to be able to have all this incredible happiness and all this incredible joy and and to have this incredible thing called love and to be able to have families. and, And that's the way it should last forever and ever and ever. And then suddenly we're invaded. Suddenly these catastrophes happen. Right in our own church family. We have little babies right now that have been born and they're not genetically totally correct. And we have precious loved ones in our family that are caring for them and we need to join with them in that time of suffering. 
one of our elders' wives, for many years has been flat on her back with MS. And we all wonder, like some of you run away from that and you don't know what to do with that and there's a part of me that wants to do that. All of those events that I've told you about are not pretend stories. They're not TV dramas. They're not Hollywood dramas. They could easily become the story of your life. And what you do with those kind of realities is really important. Because you live in a society, in fact, it's almost like methane gas all around you. It's so poisonous, it's so destructive. It's telling you that this life is all there is. That this is all you can think about, this is all you can count on. This is what you need to build your life upon. And so you need to try to just run away from all those negative things because this life is all you're going to have and just try to ignore some of those bad things. But I want you to know that the real God of the universe has written the book of Revelation to us to help you to realize that all of those bad, tearful things, all that death, all that sickness, is reminding you that you live in a world where things are not the way they ought to be. The Lord's going to give you little glimpses, like when you do fall in love and like you do get married and you do have the joy of a child and you, and you do have the thrill of sexual relationship. And the Lord's going to give you little glimmerings of what it's really going to be like one day. But right now, we still live in the old order. That's what Revelation has been about. You see, we've been going through this book and we've been, John the Apostle has been speaking to a fledgling group of believers like yourselves. And he's been challenging them in the midst of a tremendous opposition. The emperor is telling them, don't believe in Jesus. Don't believe in this carpenter from Galilee. Don't believe in this Jewish Messiah. You need to believe in the Roman Empire. You need to believe in my gods. You need to believe in Babylon, my city, this great economic system. You need to live just for now. Things haven't changed in 2,000 years. The challenge to you today and the challenge to me is exactly the same thing. Many of you young people are going to go out this week and you're going to have to decide, are you going to live for the old order or are you going to live for the new order? And what I want you to get across is the Apostle John says there's no in-between. You either live for the old order, you live for this old Babylonian system, or by faith you grab a hold of a precious Savior and you put all of your life, all of your confidence, you decide all your decisions, all your priorities are built on that. As we open up to Revelation chapter 21 today, John gives us a vision. It's like all the smoke is cleared. We've even come through a thousand years of tremendous millennial blessings where Jesus Christ has reigned here on earth. And yet even at the end of the millennial kingdom, the world of mankind still joins the evil one and rebels against Jesus. We've seen the great white throne judgment. The last message I gave to you, I spoke on the reality that God doesn't grade on the curve. That God doesn't have any in-between standards. That you either are totally fulfilled and complete in Christ. And your name is written in the book of life because you received the gift of grace. And you've let the finished work of Christ cover you. Or you're going to be lost forever and ever. Well, Revelation 21 gives us a vision of the new world order. Look how it begins. It says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven. So once again, we're going to be able to get a heavenly perspective on things. We're going to be able to look at things from the new world order. This is after all the present universe has been destroyed. Look what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 20, chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The Bible teaches that this present universe is the old world order. And even during the millennial kingdom, Jesus is going to show us what it's going to be like 
to have the world be what it's supposed to be. But then he's going to do away with it because once again, human beings will rebel against him, proving that, boy, do we need God's amazing grace because our intrinsic nature is to walk away from him. What John is describing here is that this present world order is going to pass away. What I want you to feel in the book of Revelation is we begin Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's the way that the Bible begins. Now we end the Bible with the ultimate author of history saying, now, in the beginning, I create a new heaven and a new earth. It's like things are resolved. Now we're going to start again. Now we're going to no longer have this threat, this rebellion of sin. And so it's almost like Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 again, only this time now we see a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. The idea of there not being any sea is really, really important. Because right now in the book of Revelation, we've been coming through the book, when we got to Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, we had the Antichrist coming up out of the sea. And that was built on the imagery of Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In Daniel 7, 1, the great prophet of the Old Testament, Daniel, who foresaw the great history, the progression of history, Daniel saw winds blowing up from the four corners of the world and causing all the world to become like a, a seething cauldron, like a perfect storm, 100-foot waves, risking death, all this incredible tumult at sea. And he sees the great world empires coming out of that. That's what the book of Revelation has been wrestling with, this tremendous competition among the nations. And so when John says in the new heaven and new earth that there will no longer be any sea, what he's saying is when God creates a new universe in this new order, the order that we're going to live for, the order that we need to capture a vision of, there's no longer going to be this seething cauldron of competition among the nations. There's no longer going to need to be armaments. There's no longer going to need to be F-15 fighter pilots because then the sea is going to be no longer. It's a symbol for the fact that, that now we're going to have a, a world where there's calm. If you think about the creation of the first world, all the world was covered with water. That's ininhabitable to us as human beings. Like if you remember Waterworld, it was a lousy film, but it gave you kind of an image of living in a world where everything is covered with water. It's not habitable to man. You and I are not fish. We're not born to live in the water. We need land. We need land that we can put our feet on. If, if you've ever been in the Navy and gone out to sea for many, many months, you long to get back to some solid land because we are landlubbers. We're built to have our feet on the ground. The Old Testament imagery, that idea, in this new heaven and new earth, there's going to be no longer this inhospitable sea. This place, this environment where human beings can't flourish, where they can't live. You see, in the old order, God caused the dry land to come up out of the sea and he separated the ocean so that there would be places on the continents where you and I would be able to have a hospitable land. In the new order of things, it's all going to be hospitable. It's all going to be arable. It's all going to be a place where we can live. That's what, what John wants you to feel in this new order of things. The second imagery I think that John would have in mind if he were here today, he would say, I also want you to think of the sea as being, as you're going through your life, things are calm. Things are going along peaceful. There's nice blue skies and the ocean is calm. 
But then all of a sudden, if you've ever done anything out in the water, like you've ever been a sailor, if you've ever gone to, out on deep sea voyages and stuff, you'll, you'll find that the ocean's very deceptive. It can be calm and placid. And then wham, suddenly gigantic storms come up. For example, in the Sea of Galilee, in the Lord's own earthly ministry, he would go out and things would be calm in the Sea of Galilee and then a terrible violent storm would raise up and the Sea of Galilee, even today, can just in a matter of minutes become a seething cauldron of gigantic big waves that can be destructive to life. You know, that's the way our life is. Like those stories that I told at the beginning of today's teaching, they're like storms at sea. The gets right now have had a gigantic storm explode in their life. My friend Wayne, when that accident happened, tremendous storm came up in his life. All of us that have gone through the loss of a loved one, finding out about terminal illness, you all know, every one of you, deep in your heart, if you've ever gone through an experience like that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like all of a sudden your life becomes totally a storm. It's like you can't see your way out. You feel that everything is threatened. And you can have a little bit of peace for a while. You go through a few months, you begin to recover, and then wham, something, you can trigger it again, something you see, something you smell, and you're right back in the storm again. John the Apostle is promising you that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth where there'll be no more of that chaos, no more of that sudden jolt, that sudden news, that horror, that dread that comes upon you. When you look into the depths of the sea, especially at night, on a stormy night. I remember when I was going down to the Caribbean one day and it was very stormy and just looking off the bow of this great big ocean liner and seeing those gigantic waves and looking into that blackness, that darkness, that, that death, knowing that if I dropped over the side of that ship that I would be gone. It produces a tremendous dread in your heart. And that's what the sea represents to the Apostle John. And he's saying, in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no longer that invasion of angst and dread and horror. He's saying that there's no longer going to be any sea. Instead, he's going to see a new holy city. I saw a holy city. It's the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It's prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I want you to think about that verse. It combines a couple images that really mean a great deal to us. For one thing, all of the young people in this group, you long for a city. Every high school teenager in Texas wants to get away from their little town and go to the big city. When I was back east, I said, the big city they want to go to, man, they want to go down to Austin. They want to be able to go to the big city of Austin or the big city of College Station. No, that's not really true. They want to go to a city. I have all kind of telling me, man, I want to get away from rural Midlothian. I want to go to a big city. Well, when I'm back east, they laugh about that a little bit because, see, to them, the big city is the big apple. Man, you want to go to New York City because that's the big city. Now, why do you want to go to a big city? Because in a great big city is where all the exciting people are. And that's where all the exquisite food is. In New York City, you can eat any kind of food you want, any time of the day that you want. It's where all the great entertainment is, a tremendous art, tremendous symphony orchestra. That's why people like to live in New York City. We used to be very cynical about it when I lived in New Jersey, and we'd talk about it as being like just Crudville, USA, and a terrible place. But in reality, there was an exciting part to live in just about a half an hour from Manhattan. And you could go in, and especially at night when the lights were blazing. There's a yearning in every one of your hearts for this big, beautiful, dazzling city. 
But I want to tell you something about every earthly city on planet Earth. Every earthly city, Dallas, Houston, L.A., London, New York. When you find out the reality of the city, you're going to find out that the city of this world will break you. It will hurt you. It will entice you into a lot of things that are destructive to you. It will entice you to worship, just living for that city. It will entice you into doing a lot of things that you shouldn't do. And you'll find out that it lies to you. It's a city that grabs your young life and then trashes it and dumps you on the street. Because that's the nature of the old city. You see, in the book of Revelation, it's really the tale of two cities. And the the, the secular city is called Babylon. And we've learned about Babylon. It's living for pride. It's living just for your own itself. It's living for material things. It's filled with immorality. It's filled with idolatry. We've also found out that underneath it, it's very cruel and it's very violent. And I really want you to think hard about that. I want you to realize that that city, that secular city, is all around us. Right during this week, you're going to be faced with a challenge to live for the old city. To live for that old way of life. And John is saying, no, I want you to live through the eyes of faith. I want you to live for the holy city, the new Jerusalem. I want every one of you to realize that here in this earth, here in this earth, there's never a city that's going to be good enough for you. There's never a city that's going to meet your need. There's never going to be a city that if you can only make a vacation trip to that city. What Las Vegas? Just look at the advertisement for Las Vegas. Just listen to the advertisements. If you want to know what Babylon is like, listen to the advertisement for Vegas. They'll talk to you about the beautiful lights at night. They'll talk to you about the marvelous food you can eat and how cheap it is. But if you'll really step back away from that city, you'll find out that they want to, they want to turn you in to an automaton. They want to turn you into just a piece of flesh that just plugs 25 cents in machines because you're like a Pavlov's dog because they whet your appetite by making the first few slugs you put in bring you back a big winner. And if you look at the real reality of it, you're going to find out that there's prostitution. You're going to find out that there, that there are tremendous habits of, of abuse and gambling. I know people that grew up in our church that this, just an innocent week in, in Las Vegas and we'll just pretend for maybe just a few days, have a really neat vacation, forget about our Christian stuff, we're just going to be the secular person. I know of marriages right now that have been totally dissolved because that happened. Because they went to the big city. They were lured by the secular city of, of this old Babylon. And it destroyed them. They did some immoral things. There can be things that happen even among friends that become very destructive, and their life was destroyed. What I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, I'm leveling with you. This is really powerful stuff. You're going to decide in your own heart, and I'm going to decide in my own heart, am I going to live just for this present world order, for the New York City of this world, for the London of this world, for the Parises of this world? Am I going to believe that there's some beautiful, exotic place I can go, and I'm going to find happiness? There's a yearning in every one of your hearts to go to the big city. That yearning in itself is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. The Lord wants you to yearn for a city. But he doesn't want you to yearn for the secular city. He wants you to yearn for his holy city. What I want to get across to you is that Satan is lying to you. Satan is telling you that if you will follow him, if you will go to his city, if you will enjoy him, if you'll obey him, if you'll just allow allow yourself the freedom to do whatever you want to do, that he'll make you happy. 
that he's the one that can really satisfy you. And what I want you to know that that is a lie. That is a total lie. God is the one. It's God's city. It's God's will. It is God's dwelling place. It is God's presence who alone can really give you the most exotic privileges and pleasures and satisfactions that you can ever have. And that's true in every area of life. If you follow God, I promise you one day he's going to put you in a city where you're going to eat exquisite meals. You won't even need to eat them, but you will be able to. And just enjoy exquisite meals that I can't even imagine. I can't even begin to describe because the word of God breaks down when it talks about these incredible celebrations that God's people are going to have. The Bible tells us that the exquisiteness of marital love in sexual relationships and marriage are just a little foretaste. You want to know what heaven's like? Just multiplied your first none of your marriage. If you had things really went well that night or your, your honeymoon experience, multiply it a million times. Multiply it a million times. That's a little taste of heaven. Little taste of heaven. That's really true. That's what the Bible says. Hosea 2 uses the joy of marital love to give us a little foretaste of the new holy city that's coming down. God wants you to yearn for that great big city. But I want you to yearn for the right city. And I want you to realize that even in this life, even in this life, God will give you the joys and the privileges and and little tastes of what it means to live in the new city. But you always need to remember we're still living in the old order. We're going to be invaded by sadness and chaos and struggles because we're not home yet. So we enjoy some of the glimpses of eternity, but we realize that we're, we've got this unsatisfaction in our heart. And rather than trying to get rid of that unsatisfaction, we let that unsatisfaction drive us to live for eternity. That's what John is trying to get across to these new believers. And you've got to decide whether you're going to believe it or not. I want you to yearn to go to the big, beautiful city. I don't want you to yearn for the wrong city. And I can just tell you from the depths of my heart, New York is not going to satisfy your needs. L.A. is not going to satisfy your needs. Some of you in music, you want to go to Nashville? It's not going to meet your needs. My brother's lived in Nashville for years. He's recorded with almost all the artists that are there. And he can tell you about broken families and broken kids and threats of suicide. Why is that? Because country music and all that Nashville can bring isn't good enough. It's just not good enough. And it doesn't work to, to, to have your family and make covenant vows of marriage and then get to be 35 or 40 and, and suddenly be attracted to somebody else. And all your country songs have been saying, go ahead with somebody else because that's where you're going to find satisfaction. Brothers and sisters, just think hard about it. That doesn't really work. It doesn't work to leave little kids behind because you want to find another love, another satisfaction. The secular city just will not meet your need. I want you to know that when you, as you grow older, your body starts to deteriorate and disease can begin to invade. And then what are you going to have? If this is the only city you have, this is the only life you have, it looks really great. Like when you watch single, the, like the single beautiful, three beautiful women on the new sitcom, sitcom that's just blazing the way across our country. You know, it's really great when you're 35 and you're a total knockout 10 and you can have any man you want. That really looks cool to live in a big city and just go in and out of relationships with men. Try it when you're 65. And I'm really serious, brother, in this history with the young people that are here. You have no idea how quick time will march out. I've just suddenly woken up. 
And now they call me sir when I go to the hospital. <laughs> and you all laugh, but man, it happens. All the gray heads in the audience say it happened just like that. And I want you to know that that doesn't have to be a bummer, but it will be a bummer if you just live for the secular city. I want you to yearn for the city, but I want you to yearn for the right city. I want all of you that are, that are in the older generation. It's this future city that's coming that's going to help you to work with a one and do it. I saw like Margaret Wilson and, and Nell Venable. I walk into the church, the daycare, and I walk into the, into the children, the, the infants, and here's our two precious ladies, and they're just up to their armpits. Where they had babies hanging everywhere, and they even tried to conscript me into changing diapers and everything. And I think, oh, what an incredible joy. What an incredible thrill. Here's these grandmas, and they're still investing their lives, not, not just even in their own peers, but they're reaching all the way back to the next generation. What enabled you to do that? What gives you the power to do that? Living for the city that's coming. Because you know it's going to be fresh and beautiful and renewed. And, and every single day, you know that, man, we're getting closer to where we're really going to be at. That's this new city that's coming down out of heaven. The holy city of the new Jerusalem. Coming down out of, out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride. Beautifully dressed for her husband. The idea of the bride dressed for her husband is that's one of the most exciting times in your life. One of the most thrilling times in your life is when you get ready to be a bride. All of you ladies are anticipating that, that if not gone through that experience, you look forward to falling in love. And one of the big days of your life, one of the big thrills of your life will be when you get dressed up to be a bride. That's the feeling that the new Jerusalem's going to have, only it's going to last forever and ever and ever. Heaven is going to be like having a wedding. And being the center of attention at a wedding, it's going to be like that. And the joy of that party is what heaven's going to be like, only it lasts, not just for a few hours. It lasts forever and ever and ever. That's the vision that permeated the life of the early first century church. Then I heard a loud voice from from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's the ultimate reality that we all need to be longing for. The Old Testament, God promised the Israelites, I will be their God and you will be my people and I will dwell among you. Every morning the children of Israel came out of their tents and they looked on the presence of God. That was the thrill, that was the joy, to look on the presence of God. Jesus promised us that if I go up into heaven, I will not leave you alone. I will come to you, and the presence of God will live inside your life. One of the great privileges that you have if you've received Jesus into your heart, then you have the presence of God living inside your life day by day. That's what it means that in Ephesians chapter 1, it says you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Romans chapter 8 says if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, then you're none of his. Romans 8 verse 1 says there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus because the spirit of life has set you free from the laws of sin and death. It's one of my favorite verses that I quote to you a lot. Right now, we have begun to experience the Shekinah presence. The word Shekinah is derived from a word tabernacle in, in Hebrew, and then the Greek just picks up on the same word. It's the same word that's used that the word became flesh and he tabernacled among us. The Holy Spirit has tabernacled among us, living in our hearts. But Paul tells us right now we just see through a glass darkly. 
So we need to be growing in our faith today. And like one of the things that we need to encourage each other to do is to encourage each other to keep growing in this commitment to the unseen world, the commitment to the unseen presence of the Lord. If you become part of this secular city, you'll become deaf to that voice of the Spirit. You won't hear that voice. You'll begin to doubt its presence. If you wander away into the secular Babylon, you'll become very insensitive to the spiritual world. And I want to encourage you to do just the opposite. The greatest privilege of your life is to be able, when you're all alone, on your bed at night, before you go to sleep, just to rest in the silent, quiet presence of God. One of the things you need to do is to learn to talk to him and then just be silent and let him talk to you. If you read this book daily and you allow him to talk to you and then you'll just be silent in his presence, he'll talk to you. He'll reveal the anger that's in your life. He'll reveal the, the lust that's in your life. He'll reveal jealousy. You'll be able to keep short accounts with him and be able to confess it to him and he'll renew you and restore you and help you. That's the incredible privilege now of dwelling in his presence. But the Lord is promising us that right now we just see through a glass darkly. But one day, we're going to experience it face to face. And John's gospel, John's revelation is telling us that the day is coming. The new heaven and earth is going to be there. When you're living in the new heaven and new earth, you're going to actually be able to see the Lord Jesus. You're going to be in his presence. You're going to be living near him. And that's the greatest joy of all, to be so close to this ultimate person, this perfect person, this beautiful person, the ultimate expression of love, the ultimate expression of celebration and happiness and joy. That's what Jesus is. And I pray that one of the things we'll do is tear down all the lies of what Satan tries to say about Jesus and that we will be able to capture a biblical image of the incredible beauty, the incredible wonder, the incredible praise that Jesus deserves because of who he is. Because that's the greatest privilege of all, of living near the Lord Jesus. Why do you want to live near the Lord Jesus? Because Satan will never wipe the tears from your eyes. I want all of you to know, you want to, you want to live for the secular city? You want to go away to university and walk away from this Jesus thing? You can do it. You want to walk into business and just live several years for business? You can do it. You want to just get buried in your own life, your own pursuits? You can do it. Satan will be glad to have you do that. But I want you to know something. Satan will never, never, never tenderly hug you and wipe the tears from your eyes. In fact, one day, Satan will look at you right in the face and he will laugh at you as you cry. And I've seen him do it. I've been in counseling with people that have lived for the secular city. They've done a lot of immoral things. They've done a lot of idolatrous things. They had a lot of exciting experiences. And then Satan just rips the rug out from underneath them and they start saying things like, life isn't worth anything. I might as well just end it. And they begin to cry. You know what? I've never had the evil one. The evil one gave him really big times at really super parties. And he got him drunk as a skunk, and when they had enough alcohol in, they really had a really good time. But I never yet, I never yet had Satan come into a counting session and put his arm around somebody and cause the lights to come back on in their eyes. I never had him say, no, don't take your life, because you're precious. You're going to live forever and ever, and I love you so dearly. In fact, I love you so much I died for you. Satan will never tell you that. But from the depths of my heart, brothers and sisters, there is one who will. 
You see, the only answer for Wayne in that hospital room is right here. It says right here that he will wipe every tear from Wayne's eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The old order of things has passed away. That's why I live for Jesus. My dad was able to say, Wayne, I don't have any answers from a human perspective. But I'll never forget my dad and Wayne joining hands together. And they're able to say, I know that my precious wife is in the arms of Jesus. And I don't understand why in the world that he allowed her to be taken away from me so quickly. And I know that that's not his perfect will for me to be crying and for me to be hurt. But I also know that one day, the trumpet will sound and Jesus will return and Jesus will take that young wife that was taken away from Wayne before they even had a chance to enjoy each other. Jesus says, is going to one day put his arm around Wayne and says, Wayne, don't cry anymore because here's your precious, precious lady that you love so much and I want you to enjoy for a million, million, million years and you're going to enjoy me forever and ever. That's what it means that Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He's the one that can do that. Brothers and sisters, I don't know of anyone else that can do that. In fact, there's no other savior, no other religious teacher, there's no one else on planet Earth that can put his arm around you someday and wipe away every tear from your eyes. And it says, God the Father, God the Son, through the presence of their Holy Spirit, is going to wipe every tear from their eyes. You know what that enables me to do? It enables me right now this morning to not run away. I want to, but Revelation 21 helps me not to do that. It helps me not to feel it as our church family grows and I know problems multiply and sin can invade. It makes me not want to run away because I know that eventually we have a dear Lord Jesus Christ who's going to hug us to himself, take us to a glorious holy city that's going to be the fulfillment of all of our dreams and he's going to wipe away the death, the mourning, the crying forever and ever. 